When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I've been worried about you. You've been very quiet. I haven't seen hide nor hair of you this week. I mean, you, did, did you go underground? Have you been completely off the radar? Where have you been? The world is asking. Nothing much going on, really. Oh, my God. Ed, I mean, are you feeling triumphant after your performance in the Commons? No. No, no lapse of honour, thank you. Come on, you must feel you must feel like a king. No, 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 no. You're too modest. No spiking the football. That's a, an American football term. Okay, okay. But but did your phone explode? Look, people were nice about it, but you know, I think I think me of all people knows that there's a small gap between triumph and disaster. <laughs> uh. <laughs> did you hear from people you'd not heard from in years? Yeah, well, I was grateful for your message. <laughs> I'm telling you, I I loved it because people were texting and tweeting me saying, "Oh, you know, tell Eddie played a blinder, like you, like you know, spousal spousal glory." Yeah. I I got to bask in the reflected glory. Um, could you tell as it was happening how how good it was? Because she's obviously speaking with all this passion. Could you tell how well it was landing? I think. I mean, obviously, you know, for me, it was a slightly sort of odd day because at 9 30 in the morning i thought i was going to be facing my opposite number alok sharma at 10 o'clock in the morning i heard that johnson was doing the debate and i thought it would be keir starmer versus johnson and then about half an hour later you know due to family circumstances i found out keir starmer wasn't going to be able to do it and i was going to do it so it was a sort of you know i then sort of rewrote the speech i i had a speech actually fortunately i'd written a speech in advance but it was a different speech obviously for against johnson as against alok sharma and so i had sort of six hours to sort of rewrite it and to think about it in a different way and i think what i was conscious of was you know 
in these circumstances where it feels like an open goal because they're breaking international law, you have to be careful not to just think, well, I can just you know spend 25 minutes saying they're breaking international law and isn't it terrible? And you've got to try, and I suppose this is where I've kind of learned from being in the House of Commons and, and seeing some truly great speeches in the House of Commons, you've got to take your opponent's best arguments or at least you've got to treat your arguments your opponent's arguments with 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 seriousness and try and take them apart and so and in fact that is the bit i sort of rewrote on on uh on monday morning because by monday morning it was sort of clear there are all these different arguments the government was making including on sunday about it so so i think that that's the sort of in a way the 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 uh the build up to it and it's obviously a very other odd occasion because i've spoken in the house of commons before you know against cameron but it was it would always be full i mean certainly if it was a controversial thing it would always be absolutely packed and so it was very i kind of did think in advance i've got to be quite careful here because if you if you act as if there's sort of 600 people in there and actually there are 25 (laughs) it's going to feel very odd so so but but somehow that didn't then make that much difference, the fact that there weren't that many people in there. If anything, does it make it easier? Well... Because you're, you're not being distracted. There weren't baying Tories, I suppose. But but I think, you know, there is something for all its faults about the House of Commons, which is if you make a decent argument, people will listen. And that's... I sort of thought, well, I've got to make a decent argument here. Um yeah, so so, and obviously, you know, you know from the fact that it's where people are relatively silent and nobody's intervening on you that, um, you know, that people are that people are listening. What is it like getting to call somebody incompetent to their face? Because you know, we've all been in in environments with people who've been incompetent, but you have to sort of skirt around the issue, and you think, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe there were some challenges that we could have done this differently. But you get to via you know the medium of the speaker say you know deliver these truth bombs. Is that scary? Did you feel nervous, you know, being so frank? Um, I mean, not really, actually. Once I was sort of in the moment, not really, because I kind of was felt I had a sort of decent argument and I kind of knew. I, I kind of went in with the, with knowing that the central argument for the, the government, which is that there was going to be this blockade by the EU on goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, that that even if you believed and the EU did say you know something on thursday which was which was quite problematic actually um albeit after the government said they were going to break international law but they should but you know i don't think the eu should have said that but i i kind of knew that the central point the that this bill had nothing to prevent that happening because this bill wasn't about goods going from great britain to northern ireland and and actually you know i had thought i might intervene on johnson to say that in the middle of his speech but then he sort of said it in his speech but he said it in such a way that nobody really who wasn't in the know completely understood what he was saying and i thought actually you know you've got to this needs to be sort of exposed because the whole threat that this bill is supposed to be dealing with even if you believe the threat turns out this bill has nothing to do with that threat and i also knew he wouldn't and to be fair to him he's the prime minister so he's got a lot he's doing a lot um you know not least obviously covid but he wouldn't know anything he wouldn't know any of the detail of the bill and i mean we saw his face in the cutaways and we've seen all the memes afterwards and the i or the thing i felt was that he kept saying for god's sake under his breath so so there was this moment when he was saying for god's sake for god's sake and i thought i wonder if i should call him out and saying for god's sake why was he saying for god's sake and i just thought actually i need this was kind of quite late on 
So I just knew he was pretty irritated. Wow, it was quite something. Did you see? I mean, I don't want to embarrass you, but John Crace, the sketch writer in The Guardian today, when he was doing his week in Parliament, was saying it was, it was one of the greatest speeches he's ever heard in all his time covering Parliament. And well, the Daily nice. Mail, who wrote it up uh, as, as if... Um, Johnson somehow won. The comment section of the Daily Mail were all pro you. I mean, I don't think that has ever happened in the history of the Daily Mail before. Um, all these people in the best rated comments were saying that uh, you must have been watching a different debate, mate. Miliband destroyed him. It was, it was actually, it was actually me, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, you're, you're, being, you're being very kind and generous. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? This week, we're talking about the idea of the foundational economy, or what some people call the everyday economy. We've rightly heard a lot in recent months about the vital role of essential workers, supermarket assistants, delivery drivers, care workers, and others who have kept the country going during the COVID crisis. And yet it is exactly these workers who are often on the lowest pay and are the most insecure. Now, a group of researchers in Manchester have spent years arguing that we need to properly value this kind of work, what they call, as I say, the foundational economy. They argue policymakers often focus on shiny high-tech sectors, but ignore these everyday jobs that provide our basic needs. They believe that nearly half of people work in the foundational economy, and we're going to be exploring why it should be at the heart of economic decisions. First, we're going to be talking to Chika, a care assistant, and Kelly, who represents care workers for the GMB union, about the experience of working on the front line over the last few months. Then we're talking to one of the founding fathers of the foundational economy, Carol Williams, about how it should change our way of doing things. And finally, to Josh Miles, who works for the Federation of Small Businesses in Wales. We'll be asking him about what the Welsh government has been doing, and they've been leading on this, on all of this, and why he backs the foundational economy approach. So what's your reason to be cheerful this week? My reason to be cheerful this week is a, a tweet I received the other day Oh yeah, um, from Professor Thomas Dixon, who says, Hi, Jeff, I've listened to the podcast and interested to hear you discussing tears and stoicism. I share your feelings about this. Um, also, if you'll pardon my mentioning it, I thought you might enjoy my book, Weeping Britannia. And I've ordered this book. Listen to this. Uh, this is the, the blurb for the book. There is a persistent myth about the British that we are a nation of stoics with stiff upper lips, repressed emotions and inactive lacrimal glands. Weeping Britannia is the first history of crying in Britain. How it fantastic! comprehensively debunks this myth. Uh, far from being a persistent element in the national character, the notion of the British stiff upper lip was in fact the product of a relatively brief and militaristic period of our past from about 1870 to 1945. In earlier times, we were a nation of proficient, sometimes virtuosic moral weepers. Wow! So I've ordered that uh, that book, and I, I feel that I am now part of a rich tradition of um, crying Brits. That's fantastic. That book. Please update us once you've read it. That sounds fantastic. I will. That sounds will. fantastic. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, look, I have significant news to report on the vehicular front because, oh. and, and you deserve massive, massive credit for this. Um, I cycled all the way from my home in London to the House of Commons. You did it! Yes, Fantastic. I did it. I, I basically managed to sort of ride all the way in. Uh, I mean, there was so it took me like over an hour because there was a few bit of sort of wheeling of the bike and a few. Actually, one sort of slightly nasty moment, and I need to apologise to somebody was on the 
You know the embankment bikeway? Have you been on that? It's not called the bikeway. It's yeah, it's fantastic. You get to go along the north uh, bank of the Thames, but you're sort of separate from the traffic. I tell you what was a problem, though, was the the, the bend into it was quite complicated. And well, these bikes, the line bikes are quite heavy. And so I kind of found that turn quite difficult. And so I stopped with like six bikes behind me. And I really caused slightly a sort of bike pile up slightly so i apologize to anyone who's behind me at approximately uh well i can't remember what time the time was anyway it was in the mid-afternoon on um on wednesday um anyway but i made it all the way and there was a tory mp who shall remain nameless standing having a chat with somebody who i got to take a picture of me to prove that it happened um so but i you know you you are massively to be thanked because if you hadn't sort of really pushed me and said it's all doable and you can do it and so on i don't think i would have really undertaken it that's great and great news for the formation of our biker gang you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd now to talk about the specific situation in the care sector a vital part of the foundational economy I'm glad to say that we are now joined by Chika Rubin, who is a care assistant in London, and Kelly Andrews, who's care worker lead for the GMB union. Thank you very much, both of you, to, uh, for joining us. That's OK. Uh, Chika, let me start by talk, asking you, because I think it's really important to, to, to start with your experiences. Can you start by telling us how you first got into care work and how long you've been working in the sector? Okay, um, I got into care work that's 10 years ago now, which is from 2010 to 2020. And uh, I got into it because of the compassion. I'm a very compassionate person. And then I like to look after vulnerable adults and children and all that. And as a mother, I believe that that's one skill that I have to actually look after people. And if I may ask you a personal question, is it is it minimum wage? Is it slightly better than minimum wage? It's exactly minimum wage. It's a it's a minimum wage job. Talk to us if you if you don't mind, Chica, about what it's been like working in the sector during the COVID crisis and what kind of issues you've had to face. Working in that crisis time, it was actually very frightening. At first, nobody actually knew what was going on and uh, people kept on dying, the elderly kept on dying. So a lot of people were frightened, most especially I was frightened as well because we've got um, a lot, we've got our family and children. So when we come to work, we don't know what's happening and no one is tested. So we just had to work with people that, that tested positive to COVID-19 and we had to face it. And then there was lots of lack of PPE. And um, so it wasn't something good. It wasn't mentally and psychologically. A lot of people were affected with it. It must have been incredibly scary, Chica, in those... It was, I mean... it was. It was working with people that... Uh, working with residents and they keep on having... Dying and some, some of the staff were having the symptoms... But they don't. There's no testing, so they don't actually know what was going on. So it wasn't. It wasn't a good experience. It was. It was frightening. But at the same time, because of the duty of care, we are meant to actually stay and look after these residents. And you kept going to work and looking after the residents despite the danger. Uh, a lot of us did. Uh, personally, I. 
I did, but I had to self-isolate at one point because right. I was showing some symptoms, but I didn't get any tests. So I had to self-isolate. And uh, but a lot of people, some because I self-isolated and I was getting sick pay, so a lot of people are just there trying to feed their family and they have symptoms, but they come to work because they don't want to get home and get a statutory sick pay. And uh, we just had to manage the situation, even though we were scared. <laughs> I can completely see that. Kelly, let's turn to you. You represent care workers for the GMB. Are Chica's experiences typical of the problems in the sector more generally and indeed during the crisis? Yeah, I think what Chica is explaining by that is perfectly what's been, you know, the whole experience of, of the social care sector. You know, our care, our members were absolutely terrified in the first few weeks and months of COVID. They did not know what to expect. We had severe shortage of PPE, you know, in, in the early days. Uh, do you, you remember that, you know, care workers weren't even given masks in the first few weeks of COVID. They were expected to go into work um, as normal, look after the residents. And it was shocking to see, um, you know, the way that care workers were treated throughout the UK and... In some cases, we were having care workers begging on social media for the public to donate masks, gloves, aprons, because they never had them. Um, and we, you know, experienced care workers in floods of tears, terrified that they were going into work, not and, and not just putting themselves at risk, but then taking the risk of COVID home to their family members their children, their loved ones, their, their older parents, and they were really, really terrified. And, you know, we've seen care workforce, um, sick pay, £95 a week. Why, why are we expecting care workers to be able to live on £95 a week for sick pay when they're battling COVID and, and a, you know, a minimum wage job? This is something that, you know, we, we shouldn't be experiencing now. And... We're talking to you and Chica, and Chica is obviously a GMB member. But, but you know, most care workers, I would guess, are not, I, I, I know, are not unionised. I mean, you know, those those people who are members of the GMB have representation. Presumably, it's even worse for those without representation. Yeah, they've got no voice of they. If care workforce are not in a union, who is speaking up for them? who's actually listening to their concerns and their cries for help. They had social media. That's what they were using as a tool for a cry for help, is social media, Facebook, Twitter. And, you know, if you go back and look at some of the posts, it was heart-wrenching. We should not have care workers begging on Facebook for PP. Something that should be supplied, should be free, should be given in plentiful supply that care workers, when they go in, should feel safe. And, and should be safe. And in the early days, this just wasn't happening. Do you think there's any extent to which care home providers were sort of left to hang out to dry by the government as well in all this? It seems that ministers have almost been able to blame care homes because it's not their, their direct responsibility. Some of the PPE stuff we've seen, price hikes in the supply chain. Were those owners not supported by government in the way that you would have liked to have seen? 
yeah, I think, you know, I th- in the, again, early days, a lot of the care providers were saying to us that they were struggling. Uh, as you quite rightly say, the prices went up. It was a very small pool of where you could get PPE from. Um, and they, and a lot of the concerns were that they were struggling. And, you know, social care is not all about the big providers and the big, you know, out offshore companies. We've got a lot of small and medium-sized companies that are struggling to to provide good care. Um, and they just didn't have the ability to get the stock in in good, t- you know, and to and provide the stock uh, of PP in some cases. And, and they were raising the same concerns as what we were, you know. What do you think all this says about the way, this, to, to both of you, Chika and Kelly, um, what do you think this says about the way that we value care work in this country? Um, for the value, um, I don't, we know they used to call carers on the skilled, but I see care workers as a very professional skilled workers because they had to deal with a lot of resident and they'd work professionally to look after people, older people, vulnerable people, and they had to deal with their mental and physical health. Make sure they are comfortable. Even at this pandemic that they, they said no, vis- no visiting of uh, family members to all the residents. The care workers were there to still give their support. So I believe they are highly skilled and not on the skill. So they should actually look into these care workers and actually appreciate what actually they are doing. Because a lot of a lot of people are at home, working from home, getting paid. They don't have any high risk. They are not being in contact with people with COVID. But these care workers are there day in and day out. So they are really, really highly professional workers. And, and government should try as much as possible to appreciate them and actually give them better pay. Because without these people, without the care workers, what would be the what would be the life and hope of all the vulnerable adults? I think again, Ed, you know, before COVID, social care was seen as under you know it was undervalued, underpaid, low skilled. It was very much seen as a job that anybody could do, anybody could walk into, and it was actually a job that you, if you asked a parent, what do you want your child to grow up to be, a care worker? Absolutely not. You know, it would be something that they wouldn't even consider for for their for their children. COVID highlighted actually what social care really is, how professional the workforce are, the skills that are needed to undertake 90, 99% of the job. It is highly skilled. And I suppose the one thing that I hope that comes out of this, because we had the clap for carers, what we have to make sure is that going forward the recognition of what the care workforce really means to this country. And we should be recognising that in the pay and the terms and conditions that our care staff get. We can no longer, we should no longer accept that care is a minimum wage job. It's not a minimum wage job. That's an insult to social care. And it's an insult to all those people that actually rely on social care. You know, as a minimum we should be expecting, as a minimum, living wage for the staff. At the very least, we should be expecting that for the social care workforce. If we want that service to be provided to our most vulnerable, our older people, and to be looked after the way that we would want our family members to be looked after. I've got one last question, which is, I mean, you, you both of you make an incredibly compelling case. And I mean, maybe this is a rather stupid question, but 
What do you think it says about our country that people who do the most important job are paid the least? Well, you just couldn't make it up, really, could I? If the only reason, in my view, that this is a minimum wage job um, and that it is not recognised by society is because it's a female-dominated workforce. It's low-paid female, and it is not recognised for being the important role there is. And, and, and that is the reality of it. We see care as a woman's job, as something you do in between picking the kids up from school. Uh, that's something women can do because, well, you just care. And actually, if you sat down and went through a day in Chica's life, and, you know, minute by minute, looked at what she did, we would not question Dublin the rate of pay that Chica would get because we would not imagine that anybody would be paid anything less than a decent wage for this. Well, look, Chica Rubin, you're doing one of the most important jobs in our society. You've done it through lockdown. We, we are all incredibly indebted to you. Kelly Andrews, you, you are obviously doing an amazing job standing up for care workers. Thanks so much, both of you, for joining us. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So to familiarize us with this idea of the foundational economy, we have Carol Williams, who is Professor of Accounting and Political Economy at Manchester Business School, a member of the Foundational Economy Collective. And Carol, I believe, known as the godfather, the founding father maybe even, of the foundational economy? Well, it's a collective and other people will hit me over the head if I actually claim to be the father of anything in this group. That's too bashful, Carol. Come yeah, on. Yeah, come on. What One of the founding fathers then? One of the founding fathers. I have to let you into a secret, Jeff, which I think might as well get out early, which I think Carol knows, which is that I, a very, very old and dear friend of mine who's in Canada um, told me when I was leader in 2013 that I should go and talk to carol because it was the big idea 
uh, and it could sort of make my leadership, and I failed to do so. Um, and the rest is history. Carol. Um, why don't we talk about the foundational <laughs> I feel much happier talking about this rather than the sliding doors which determine Ed's career. Fair enough. We all reinvent ourselves, Ed. I, ju- I just thought I would do some self-deprecation to In begin with. In a parallel universe, you would have made that trip. Win- win- winning self-deprecation, I, th- I was trying to. Jeff, go on. I, I can tell on, that you, get, I can tell that you're eager now. to talk about it. Uh, let, yeah. Let's start with brass tacks. Then, uh, can, can you tell us what the foundational economy is? Um, I think it's the systems that keep us safe and civilized, particularly in an urban industrial society. Um, so you've got the material systems, the pipes and cables around the utilities. You've got banking. You've got food distribution. All these things which we rely on every day when we get up. And as backing, you've got the providential services of health care and education, which are all 20th century mass inventions. And if we think of the, the uh, overall economy as a pie chart, how, how much of it does the foundational economy take up? Well, that's the interesting point. If you put the material stuff, the utility provision and health education and care together, you get to around 43% of the UK economy in terms of employment. So it's the better part of half the economy. And the interesting thing, of course, is that almost everybody until recently has wanted to talk about the tradable competitive economy, you know, wheels, wings, cars, aeroplanes, digital technology. And nobody has really wanted to talk about these things that we depend on day by day. And is that something that's changed over the years? If, if we go back further into history, do we find the foundational economy, the idea of these types of jobs, w- were, were the priority at some point? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think if you look at the post-war period from the 50s to the 70s, it was a period of great foundational construction. At the end of it, 30% of our housing was social housing, which offered secure, good homes for working-class people. You had a national grid, you had a motorway system. That was It wasn't a golden age, because this was also a period of domestic violence, homophobia, and a variety of other things. But there was a period of foundational construction, and for the past 40 years, we've been living off the legacy and running down that legacy in the UK and in other countries, so that in many ways, it's COVID-19, which has been the wake-up call, which has persuaded people of the importance of the foundational economy. Can you talk to me a bit more about that? Of course, we, we, we've heard the phrase key workers a lot during the, the pandemic. Um, how exactly has COVID-19 brought it into focus and how do you think it might change things? From the beginning of the lockdown, when people started panic buying in the supermarkets, as you'd recall, people realised there was a list of key workers whose jobs were essential to our well-being. That's to say, if the food supply, the banking system and the health system fails, there is an immediate crisis. And that many of these key workers were underpaid and undervalued. But I think You know, that's the general realisation. I think there are also uh, uh, subtler um, 
lessons underlying the uh, the the COVID event, particularly, I think, if you think about the foundational, it's about collective consumption. It's about what you can't buy from your your individual income. You know, as simply put, you can buy yourself a smartphone, but you can't buy a four G network that works in rural Norfolk. So. Um, there's this kind of collective aspect to consumption. And I think if you look at it in that way, I think COVID has been very important because I think the message in public health is nobody is safe until everybody is safe. You can't, you know, in a pandemic, buy your way into a COVID-free zone. I don't think that's been entirely taken on board by the whole population. I think the key worker point has been, I don't think this point about nobody is safe until everybody is safe, collective provision is central, has been fully taken on board. I just want to underline something, Carol, which I think is incredibly important about your work and your insights before I go on to the sort of specific implications of this insight, which is, What's very striking about the foundational economy is how much it has been ignored in policymaking, particularly industrial policymaking. That industrial policy is about the, you know, it, it was a dirty phrase for a long time. It's come back in the last decade, but it's but it's so often about you know, the automotive sector, the aerospace sector, uh, steel. Now we we can have our problems, and I do about the government's failure in those areas. But your point, I think, which is so insightful, is industrial policy has never seen to be about the care worker, the social care worker, the child care worker, the supermarket worker, the delivery driver. Do you want to just say something about that? Because I think it's an important starting point. Really, there's a kind of, has been a kind of status system of activities, which has been related to national income accounting, GDP and GVA. And what everybody has wanted is um, high output per capita activities, which uh, industries like steel, uh, cars, clearly meet those criteria. And ideally, um, status also with industries which are manifestly at the leading edge of technology. Hence, of course, the whole cult of the digital and the desire of people like Cummings to put loads of money into a British equivalent of DARPA. Now, I think what we did was quite simply, in intellectual terms, press the rewind button back to what governments in the 50s, 60s and 70s were trying to deliver for their citizens and to remind people before the COVID-19 outbreak that people's well-being depends not on high-tech, that the well-being of households and a substantial part of our employment actually depends on these mundane everyday activities which are nevertheless absolutely essential. You know, people live ordinary lives in ordinary places, relying on these systems. They are large-scale employers, if you add the providential stuff about health care and education, and to an extent, that's what everyday life is about for many people. And how, and, and then if that's the 
the the sort of framing problem of of policy having sort of ignored this sector uh, well at uh, best ignored it how in practice has policy making failed the foundational economy in recent decades what would you identify as the sort of wrong turns in policy making in relation to the foundational economy to the extent that there has been policy making i think basically uh, not enough money and not enough thought about how we organize and regulate these things if we take care and health for example with care there's been a threefold failure first of all there's been a complete failure to adequately fund care in consequence of that you've had low wages and workforce churn in the sector the state has in effect outsourced care to private providers on the understanding that it gets the maximum number of care hours at the lowest wage which is not a sensible way of getting a quality care system and to add insult to injury there are many exemplary private providers but 15 to 20% of the beds are controlled by private equity which has an extractive debt based unstable business model Um, now that's enough to be getting on with with care um not enough money not enough thought about organization not enough thought about business models and if you think about the areas of the foundational economy outside what you call providential services care health and so on to what it, so that could be everything from you know sewage uh you know water systems uh, electricity uh supermarkets uh delivery drivers all of that to what extent do those sectors share some of the problems that you've identified in care well i i think um they typically um don't have the problems of care and health the problem i think here is that there isn't really any effective system of thinking through and controlling these private operations now i wouldn't argue that these things shouldn't be in the private sector but i do think that if we look at the utilities their regulation has been ineffective most gloriously in in water Actually, i think there's something quite interesting about this which does relate to my time as labor leader which is that when i proposed the energy price cap the attack from not just the right but also from sort of mainstream economics the sort of ft world was well he's saying he wants to regulate he says he wants a price cap on energy but where's it going to end is he going to have a price cap on restaurants now i think what's important about your work and correct me if i'm wrong here is that you are saying the sort of quasi monopoly slash service oriented or foundational nature of these industries means that you believe that they they there there should be some kind of social license to operate for these for these for these industries why don't you just say a little bit more about that well i i think that that the whole idea of what you do about foundational activities which are in the private sector has been completely overwhelmed by economists idea of regulation in the interests of preventing monopoly if you're running a supermarket 
Your obligations, it seems to me, extend beyond not having a monopoly, beyond simply more straightforward pricing to things like um, paying a living wage, training, treatment of suppliers fairly, um, and all the rest of that. And I think, in a way, with these activities, whether it's retail banking or supermarkets or water or electricity supplying, what you're getting is a regional or a national monopoly. And in return for that, there should be a social quid pro quo, something that, for something. Just to interject at that point, why are supermarkets different from, say, hotels or restaurants in this context, in your view? Um, because I think that supermarkets are providing food, which is basic in a way that hotels and restaurants are not. Now, we're obviously talking about your big idea or a big idea here, which is the foundational economy. Tell us somewhere in the world that does a better job of valuing the foundational economy. Well, that always makes me smile because, um, you know, the whole thing with socialists is and uh, centre leftists, they always want to be shown somewhere which they can visit, where they can see the future that works. Definitely. And I think um, the dismal news from the foundational economy is there's nowhere you can oh, buy no. a ticket. Oh, no. Come on, <laughs> Carol. The point is that they, this isn't about a model which you can see working elsewhere. It's about a set of priorities and an idea about transition. I mean, there are elements in other countries, aren't there? If you take childcare in Scandinavia, yeah. it's a much more valued profession than it is in the UK. We've got massive insecurity, massive low wage problem in childcare in the UK. It's a core part of the foundational economy. It's done so much better in a country like Sweden. Absolutely, yes. The whole idea is that you've got a set of priorities in the foundational economy and you would have to choose and say, which ones do we try to fix so that we bring them up to a standard of decency and dignity? And indeed, um, childcare would be a very good example because not only do we have, you know, low status uh, uh, low-wage employees, it also is, by any OECD standard, the most expensive childcare of any high-income country relative to national income. So, you know, we're being doubly cheated. I think Jeff's got a final question, because, Carol, you were saying that there's nowhere you can visit, which is quite a sort of utopia, but actually Jeff's going to contradict you. Yes, the Jeffocracy. This is uh, our own vision of utopia <laughs> yes. on this podcast, with me installed as a benign dictator and Ed, my puppet prime minister. If, if we were to make you chancellor, I mean, uh, with, with a mandate to implement a foundational economy, what, what, is, what is the first thing you would do? And I'll just tell you, Carol, just before you answer that a bit like Boris Johnson, Jeff won't be doing the details. So there'll be a lot of a lot of it will be left to you. Very much so, yes. Very hands-off. Yes. Um, yes. Well, I think the first thing I do is um, do what the OGB, the Austrian TUC, did with their building last year. I'd um, instruct the minions to hang a large banner off Big Ben, which said, good life for all, because I think that's really what we're about. And then I think 
uh, your puppet prime minister would should make a speech saying that the first priority is a decent, affordable home for every family in the country. And I think um, that would involve rent control for generation rent in London. It would involve social housing for those who are in low and insecure employment. And it would involve well-organised retrofit uh, for energy-inefficient older houses. And um, at that point, thank you and good night, I think. <laughs> Carol, that was brilliant. Uh, thank you so much for explaining that to us. I'm, I'm on board. It's something that's going on to the, it's not, not even the long list, but the short list for the Jeffocracy. Uh, Carol Williams, Professor of Accounting, Political Economy at Manchester Business School. Thank you so much. Now, to talk about the idea of the foundational economy in practice, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Josh Miles, who is policy manager at the Federation of Small Businesses in Wales. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, Josh, let's start. FSB Wales, interestingly, have played a big role in getting the foundational economy on the agenda in Wales. What's the story of how FSB Wales first got interested in the idea and 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 and, and What's now been adopted in Wales? So forgive me if I give you a little bit of a history lesson here, but um, to explain the rationale, I need to go back a little bit. So um, as you mentioned, I work for uh, the Federation of Small Businesses. We represent about 10,000 SMEs, uh, the length and breadth of Wales, and I lead on the kind of policy and research work. And after the 2008 economic crisis, um, the Welsh Government at the time, um, it was a Welsh Labour Plaid Cymru coalition, came up with a plan called the Economic Renewal Plan, which was um, really interesting, did a, a lot of things focused around the usual sorts of things. So uh, it had six key sectors, you know, life sciences, advanced manufacturing, those sorts of things. And a couple of years into it, we as FSB wanted to test how relevant that was to companies in Wales. Um, really, we, we found some stark findings that most companies just didn't see it as, as relevant to them, most of the ones we surveyed. And the ones that were even in those sectors found it hard to, to see themselves with the kind of uh, language that was being used by the government at the time of advanced manufacturing and those sorts of things. So that made us think, you know, perhaps we're not communicating some of the issues around the economy the right way here. And we thought we'd have a look around for some new thinking that spoke to businesses that we had as, as members who were in sectors outside of the ones identified, but also just to broaden the, the discussion on the economy. And that's what led us to the foundation economy, really. So we, we sparked up a, a conversation with um, Carol at Manchester University. And, um, and I think the, the attractive bit was that the foundation economy picked up on those bits of the economy that tend to get neglected by governments. So, you know, when you look at the economic renewal plan as was, it picked the same sort of sectors that Wales are going to be world beating on that you see in every economic plan around the world, you know. Not everybody can be an expert in advanced manufacturing and life sciences. Yet lots of day-to-day things, things like social care, things like housing, we just get left out of the conversation entirely, despite having significant economic value. And, and also, it, it didn't really respect the geography of, of Wales and, and also the UK more generally. So you know, these sorts of um, things governments talk about in, in these sort of industrial strategies tend to be focused in, in clusters where they're quite affluent already. So for us, that meant in and around Cardiff, where you had those sorts of advanced manufacturing or life sciences companies. 
But what we found with the foundation economy is, you know, social care and childcare businesses are in every town, in every community, in every part of Wales. So, so there's a spatial relevance there. You just didn't get from conventional economic thinking. And we went into the 2016 uh, assembly election, as was, with like a cross-party campaign on this. And the um, outcome of that was the Welsh Government adopted it as part of their new economic strategy. And really, this is a, a tentative kind of step in the right direction, because for the first time, we had a government talking about not just those shiny kind of sectors, but also things like social care and housing and childcare within the realms of economic policy making. Just to pick up on one particular point, you're the Federation of Small Businesses. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about the, and obviously you think about your membership, Talk to us about the relevance of the foundational economy in particular to the small businesses that you represent. Well, I think in particular it's relevant because, you know, we are sectorally diverse in in Wales. You know, we've got a lot of different sectors. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the things that government speak to only happen in certain parts of Wales. Yet, when you look at people's everyday lives, you know, if you take the average person, they might drop their children off uh, at the nursery on the way to work. They might work for a construction company dealing with, you know, retrofit of housing or those sorts of things. They tend to be done by small companies, by and large. They're not done by, you know, multinational corporations. And for us, that's where the relevance of this came in, because we were talking about companies that don't tend to get a look in when it comes to conventional economic conversations. What difference do you think that the Welsh government having this focus on the foundational economy has so far made it's obviously early day relatively early days but has it made a difference so i think it's stimulated new ways of talking about the economy which is in itself a good thing but it's also led to a lot of experimentation so as you mentioned we're in the very early stages of this but um, what welsh government has allowed us to do um, working with them is try new types of interventions and try to bring people together in different ways under the banner of the foundational economy, just to try and see if there are ideas we can pick up and scale up in the future. And are there some examples of that, Josh, just to give our listeners a sense of the kind of experimentation you're talking about? Yeah, there's, there's plenty. So um, one of the things they've done is create a, a challenge fund, which has funded 52 different projects, or kind of micro-projects across Wales. And they're in really diverse things. But to, to give you an example, one of them is bringing four housing associations together in the Gwent area, which is, is just north of Newport, um, and getting those uh, housing associations to look at how they buy things and how they engage local companies when they go in and you know repair premises they've got and when they build new houses, those sorts of things. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is... So how they can support local businesses and decent wages and all of that, for example... Absolutely, yeah. So they're solving the, the policy problems they have, you know, build more houses, keep them well maintained. But then they're thinking about how they, uh, who they get involved in order to do that. So the kinds of companies they have and the economic and social impact, you know, using those companies has on the area. I know you're on uh, the Valley's task force. What are you doing with that and how does the idea of the foundational economy play into it? So does it help if I give a quick overview on what the Valley's looks like? Because... Um, Maybe not all your listeners will, will have the same uh, understanding as, as perhaps I would as, as someone from that part of the world. But 
when people think of Wales, they have this, this Welsh stereotype, don't they, of, you know, long terraced houses on the side of mountains, uh, overlooking coal pits and lots of people in male voice choirs, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly what I was thinking. Same for you, Ed. Well, no, I'm much more sophisticated than you, Jeff. actually. <laughs> so that's the Welsh stereotype, OK? But in practice, that is the valleys. So, you know, big parts of Wales never had coal. They're flat, you know, they don't have hills. Um, they don't tend to have terraced houses and they were never really industrialised like that. And, and the cities in Wales are quite different as well. So, so that Welsh stereotype is, is very much the South Wales Valleys. It's a, a stretch of Wales that goes from Carmarthen in the west to uh, the border with England. And it is basically hills. It's a load of hills and mountains. It's about a third of the population of Wales. Um, and it's, it's where the coal mining industry, you know, was really, really concentrated. And basically, the experience there since since the seventies has been one of rapid deindustrialization. Um, so, it, you know, it shares a lot of um, similarities to other parts of of the UK, like the northeast of England, but also um, other parts of Europe. Um, but the long term challenges are kind of poor housing stock, low productivity, poor skill levels, and a massive brain drain out um, of the South Wales valleys. So, the valleys task force was set up then by Welsh government to try and address some of those issues. We only introduced um, the Foundation Economy to that agenda about 18 months ago, so I was brought in to chair a, a subgroup as part of that. And really, given the, the time we've had, we've used it as, as a place to concentrate on that uh, field of experimentation I mentioned earlier. So of those 52 projects I mentioned in the Challenge Fund, half of those are in the Valleys area specifically. Um, we've been doing quite a lot on what we call progressive procurement, so um, working with local anchors in the public and private sector so you know you might have an FE college in the town so how do we go into that college and get them to think about the social and economic impact they have um, so that work is, is underway with the Centre for Local Economic Strategies uh, so through the task force we've just been trying to experiment in those areas so we've got a bit of learning to share so we can scale up in the future. I think it's really exciting what you're talking about. And I think it's really fantastic to have the voice of the FSB in Wales at the forefront of this. And you've obviously been, a, I know this from experience, from my own experience, you've obviously been a massive innovator in this area in Wales. So to Josh Miles, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So what did you think? I think when, when we talked about doing this as an episode, I worried that it might be a bit theoretical. Um, but you know, just talking to Chica and, and Kelly at the beginning, I, I, I found it, you know, you know, I, I'm, as previously discussed, I'm easily moved to tears. Um, but I found it very emotional hearing about that work and what that work has been like this year, which I think really set up the rest of it. And I'm, I'm wondering if something is starting to emerge in the, the podcast we're doing at the moment about the economy and about how, to use Josh's phrase, the focus has been on the shiny rather than on the lives that most people are living. And I think, you know, often the focus is on the shiny because the, you know, there's this idea that if we do this with the infrastructure or if we do this definitely with with the economy, then everybody will be raised. But I I don't know that that works in the same way as trickle-down economists uh, trickle-down. Oh, that's a really interesting uh, way of putting it. it. You know, in the same way as that doesn't work on a a personal income and wealth level, I wonder if it's the same thing with business. What an interesting way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought about it like that. And so, so I wonder if like a, a theme that is going to start to emerge in the conversations we have in the coming months is is about just what 
you know, a, a regular life looks like and what a good life looks like for most people. I, I, I'm thinking this is a really big idea. And if, if funnily enough, I was, it was partly germinating in my mind when we had Christine Berry on just before the summer talking about childcare and why we didn't have an industrial policy for childcare came up in that conversation. Um, and I think, I think you're on to this absolutely, which is we, we currently distinguish between the sort of quote unquote productive part of the economy. And if you like, the sort of bit that is the, well, some people would say it's a burden. And, you know, it's a point made particularly by Katrin Jakobsdottir, the Prime Minister of Iceland, friend of the pod, you know, saying this distinction between the productive and the non-productive economy is crazy because, because you know, without social care, child care, you know, this is the this is the fabric of everyday, not to speak of all the other things that are in the foundation economy, this is the fabric of everyday life. And then I think the other point, which I thought was so powerful and so important that Kelly made at the end of our discussion with their, with her and Chica was, um, you know, why has this been so undervalued? Partly because it's women's work and it's what, you know, they call often reproductive labor, you know, uh, child care, social care, you know, it's looking after people. It's, it's often done by women and it's, you know, it it does reflect, I think, a sort of a gender discrimination issue here uh, in the way that we think about the economy. So, so I think this is really, really interesting and really, as you say, uh, a really big, a really big thought for us. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We'd love to hear from you. Were you inspired by the foundational economy? Have you got ideas yes. how it could be implemented? We'd, we'd love, yeah, Ed was. We'd love to hear your ideas, Ed. I'm sure we will be doing. Yeah. Um, uh, or if you've got ideas for future episodes, yes. comments, queries, all these things, uh, email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Charlotte, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I was unexpectedly moved by this week's episode and wanted to get in touch. Uh, this was about a uh, Bond baby bond last yeah, week's episode yeah. um I was born in 96, so I hadn't even heard of the Child Trust Funds until listening to the podcast this afternoon. But when I turned 18, I was lucky enough to be handed control of a building society account with a £1,000 saved by my parents and grandparents in my name. My basic living costs were about to be covered by student finance, so I was able to view this sum as disposable income and used £800 to buy a laptop, which I hoped would last a long time. The laptop carried me through my undergraduate degree. I used it to apply to my dream Master of science program in germany to help me learn two languages learn to code and keep in touch with friends and family i used it to apply and interview for my first bioinformatics student research position and then to work remotely in that job for three months during lockdown without ever meeting the rest of the team in person and i'm using it right now to write this email Six years later, the battery isn't what it was and the return key stopped working after an unfortunate orange juice incident. But the important thing is that never before or since have I had the financial freedom to make a purchase on that scale. So I wanted to add my anecdotal evidence to Gavin's point that he'd never heard someone with not much money say that 1000 or £2,000 isn't worth it. For me, it made the absolute world of difference in terms of access to higher education and jobs. I sometimes think about how much smoother life would be if me from the future could pass back some of my future earnings to my struggling to make ends meet 24-year-old self. Somehow, I only just realised that, of course, this isn't an issue for families with generational wealth. Um, 
I was shocked to hear just how vast the racial wealth gap is in the US, and I hope that baby bonds are taken up as just one measure to level the playing well, field. What an absolutely brilliant That's email. great, isn't it? It really brings it to life. What an absolutely brilliant email. Now, this one is not so much an email, but a sort of um, a tribute, I think. Um, so... In the French presidential election of 2017, the socialist candidate was a a chap called Benoit Hamon, who didn't get into the final round. But he has launched a podcast with somebody called Camille Mastracci. I hope that's pronounced reasonably accurately. Um, And it's called What If? And this is the blurb for What If? I won't do it in uh, French, um, apart from saying that it mentions le podcast anglais reasons to be cheerful and it says the inspiration the english podcast reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband, which puts forward in a, ideas in a friendly casual discussion format with journalist jeff lloyd i mean do you think that makes us a franchise jeff it does i mean do we get royalties on that i've got an idea maybe we should go and do a like global search for sort of uh, how should i put this aspirant opposition leaders who didn't quite make it and see whether they want to set up uh, a sort of version of our podcast <laughs> with, with with somebody else i mean it's like you know there are quite a lot of them around right because the left has often lost elections there's a lot of somebody else's around uh you know and and and, and you could sort of imagine it becoming a franchise <laughs> let's go global Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. It's been a corker of a show, I would say. Yeah, I'm really into this foundation of the economy. When did you last hear the word corker being used? <laughs> Slightly 1980s, isn't it? It's my wedding anniversary this week. I, I still haven't got the present. Have you got... You got any, got any advice? It's our seventh wedding anniversary on Monday. Which anniversary is it? Copper. Uh, well, maybe you should buy something with copper in it. Copper hair dye? Do you think that would be a nice gift? 2P. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a pretty brilliant present buyer, to be absolutely honest. So I think I don't think you need advice from me, really. Well, I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, I'll let you know how it goes. I've, I've got an, I've got a good idea. I good, think. I'm sure you do. Right, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Chica Rubin and Kelly Andrews, Carol Williams and Josh Miles. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research by Joel Pierce. Joel himself is backed up by Fenella DC and Zoe Gelber, with Joe Kenyon hovering around in the background like a helicopter parent. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Uh, James Deacon made the idents and seed composed the music, and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been. I'll give way to the honourable gentleman. He's been taking responsibility for the first time in his life. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hold up. 